So I need an unshakable faith. In my life, too often my faith feels easily shaken. And when some unexpected obstacle comes into my life, instantly I respond with fear rather than faith. I want to be in a position when something unexpected happens, a hiccup happens in my life. I want to be confident that there's a good God in control instead of everything feeling like it's spiraling out of my control. I want to be okay and be able to look and say, there's a good God behind this. There's, it's going to be okay. I want this faith that's not shaken every time something unpleasant, uncomfortable happens. And over the last few weeks, we've been looking at this concept of faith. And we're looking at people who exercise faith in the Bible and what we can learn from them. And how we can develop an unshakable faith in our life. And today, we're going to be talking about how faithfulness plays into faith. When you think of those two words, faith and faithfulness, you don't often think of them as having much in common besides just that word faith. Because we usually say something like, I'm faithful to my spouse, or I'm faithful to my favorite sports team. But then we use the word faith like, I have faith in an unseen God that he's at work in my world, that he's going to intervene. So where do faith and faithfulness begin to tie together? Where do they overlap at? What do these really have to do with each other? I think a faithful person is going to stick around long enough to see their faith realized. A faithful person is going to stay until they see what they put their faith in actually show up. They're going to see the unseen reward that they believed in become a seen reality. Cubs fans were faithful to root for their team for 108 years, right? Until in 2016, their faith finally paid off and they won a World Series. My grandmother, she grew up in a log cabin in Kentucky, and for some reason she always rooted for the Cubs. Now she passed away before she saw that, but she faithfully rooted for the Cubs and watched every Cubs game. And if we were out, she had a little radio and she put her headset in and she listened to the Cubbies. She was always watching the Cubbies because she's like, one day they're going to win the World Series. She passed away, but she was right. Eventually, her faith paid off. The Cubs won the World Series. And I think sometimes we simply quit or give up before God shows up. We don't stick around long enough to see what God wants to do because we're impatient. And so we move on, we do something else, and we miss what God was going to do in us and around us and through us. Now, some of the examples of faith that we see in the Bible live pretty up and down lives. They did some good things. They took some steps of faith. And we say, man, I wish I could have a step of faith like that. I wish I could do something like that. But they also did some bad things. And they did some things like, oh, man, if I did that, my life would be really messed up. They weren't perfect. And that's encouraging to me because I'm not perfect. And you're not perfect. And so if our examples of faith in the Bible live imperfect lives, that can be encouraging for us because we live in perfect lives and we can still take steps of faith. And today we're going to look at the life of Jacob. And Jacob was one of these imperfect examples of faith. He did some good things, took some steps of faith. He obeyed God sometimes. And sometimes he just, he did some things on his own and he did some things that really messed up his life. And uh, in a lot of ways, he had a lot of things going against him. He was his father's second favorite son. But there was only two sons. So he was his father's first least favorite son, if you want to look at it that way. 
He was also physically weak. It said that his brother was strong and was a hunter and was a manly man. And they said Jacob was not. He also wasn't the brightest. Despite the fact that he was known as a trickster and a con man, he was also tricked into marrying his sweetheart's older sister rather than his sweetheart. He wasn't the firstborn, so most of his family's wealth was going to go to his brother when his parents died. And so he had a lot of things going against him. But if you look at the story of, of Jacob, you actually see something very interesting about his life. He was tenacious. He was faithful. He had a tendency to stick with something and see it through. He worked 14 years in order to marry his sweetheart, to marry the woman that he loved. Now, after the first seven and your father-in-law tricks you into marrying the older sister, I don't know if I'd work another seven for him. But he was a guy who saw things through. Darby, I'd work 100 years for you. That's my correction to the sermon right there. Sorry. Um, and we see in this story that we're going to look at today, he wrestled all night with God in order to have God's blessing on his life. I think a lot of us, we wrestled for 10 minutes and we're like, this is too much work. This is too hard. I'm going to move on to something else. And I think often our faith doesn't result in mountains moving because we try something once and we give up. We try something for a week and we give up. We try something and find it hard and give up. We wait 10 seconds and we get bored, so we don't try it again. Our faith needs some faithfulness. Your step of faith is going to require some faithfulness. If we want an unshakable faith, it starts with an attitude that we won't quit when the going gets hard or the journey requires sacrifice. You will never see God move a mountain if every time you come across a mountain, you're like, I'm done, and you just turn around and walk away, right? If every time you face an obstacle, you just give up, you're not going to see God overcome obstacles. If we're going to develop an unshakable faith, we need to commit to faithfully pursuing God regardless of whether or not he shows up quickly. If we're honest, if I'm honest, most of the time I want the greatest reward with the smallest amount of effort and the smallest amount of sacrifice. But effort, sacrifice, work is what develops our faith. We can't have faith. We can't get an unshakable faith without the work, the effort, and the sacrifice that brings it. You don't get faith without the waiting and the working because that's what faith is. Developing an unshakable faith means that we've faced some mountains with God and we've gotten over some mountains with God. We've made it to the other side of those mountains with God. And so now when we face new mountains, we can trust that the God who got us over those last mountains will get us over the next mountains. You know, when we work for something, when we have to sacrifice for something, it ends up meaning more for us. If God just handed us victory after victory, we wouldn't have an unshakable faith. That's not what an unshakable faith looks like. That's a lazy faith. That's not how you develop a strong faith. A strong faith is developed when we face obstacle after obstacle and we find that God is faithful. It means something more to us when we have to sacrifice, when we have to work, when we have to go through something. When I went to college, my parents said, it's going to mean more if you have to pay for it. And I'm like, yeah, but it's going to feel a lot better if you just pay for it, mom and dad. And they said no, and uh, they made me work for it. And so, so I would go to class during the morning and afternoon, and then I went, and my first job was at a Walmart. And I would work at Walmart from 5 to 10 every day, Monday through Saturday. 
And uh, well, Saturday I would work all day, but I would work five to 10 every day after class. And I hated it, because then I'd go home and I'd do my homework or I'd do it in between classes. And I was like, this is horrible, mom and dad, this is a horrible plan. And my dad was like, I work for my college, you're gonna work for your college, even though he could have afforded to send me to college. And what I found was, I had peers who they would take a class and they're like, man, I'm gonna fail this, it's no big deal. I'll just take it again next semester. Parents would cover it. I'm like, if I take this class again, I gotta pay for it again, and I hate working at Walmart. I wanted to get past this class, and it meant more. I cared more. I was more faithful to it. I've noticed now with my brother, um, they're paying for his college. He's 16 years younger, and uh, he just doesn't have the same drive I have to pass classes. And I'm like, I wonder if that's because they're paying for it rather than he's paying for it. I will also say this, side note, I came out of college debt-free, which is unheard of because I had to work for it. Um, it meant something more for me. And your faith will mean more when God just doesn't hand you everything, but he lets you go through some challenging times. That's what develops our faith. Now, Jacob, at this point in the story that we're looking at today in Genesis 32, he'd already been through some stuff with God. He had seen God get him out of some situations. He had seen God take care of some stuff. Sometimes it was chaos of his own making where he made a mistake and God intervened. Sometimes it was just chaos of being in a broken world and people were trying to take advantage of him and people were trying to misuse him. But now he was about to face his greatest mountain. See, he had been away for almost 20 years, away from his hometown, because he had robbed and defrauded his brother. And his brother had said, I'm going to kill you. And so he's like, seems like a good thing, time to get out of town, you know? And so he had met a girl, he had married her, he had a family, and now God told him, I want you to go home and go back to your brother. Now think about this. You robbed and defrauded your brother, and he says, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. And God says, I want you to go home. And then God even added to that promise, he says, I'm going to prosper you if you go back home. He's like, it's going to be better if you go back home. Now, if I'm Jacob, I'd be thinking, that does not sound like a step of faith I want to take. To go back and be murdered does not sound like it's going to be good for me. It sounds like it's going to be bad for me. And so Jacob takes this step of faith, and he heads back towards home. And we pick up here the night before he meets his brother in Genesis 32, starting in verse 22. During the night, Jacob got up, and he took his two wives and his two slave women and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. And he took them and sent them across the stream along with everything that he had, all his possessions. And he was left alone without any of his people, without any of his stuff. And a man wrestled with him until daybreak. And when the man saw that he could not defeat him, he struck Jacob's hip socket as they wrestled and dislocated his hip. And then he said to Jacob, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. I'm not going to stop fighting. I'm not going to stop wrestling until I see a blessing, until I experience something new with God. And the man says, what is your name? Jacob, he replied. Your name will no longer be Jacob. It will be Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked him, what is your name? And the man said, why do you ask my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Penel. For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life was spared. And the sun shone on him as he passed by Penel, limping because of his hip. 
And that is why still to the day the Israelites don't eat the thigh muscle that is at the hip socket because he struck Jacob's hip socket at the thigh muscle. And so the first thing I want us to look at here as we look at Jacob's step of faith and being faithful is Jacob was left alone here. A step of faith is a step that no one else can pay for you. Somebody can't take a step of faith for you. Like, hey, I think I'm going to go start a church. I'm going to walk across the street or speak to my neighbor. But maybe somebody else will do it for me. If it's your step of faith, you have to do it. He couldn't use his possessions. He couldn't use his connections. It will involve making a decision that only you can make to step out and trust that a good God will catch you. And that can feel incredibly lonely. That's where Jacob ends up here. He's all alone. You never have to step out on faith completely alone. I've said many times here, you want to take a step of faith? Let me know what it is so we can come alongside you, so we can help you. That's what the church is about, so we can help each other take steps of faith. But there is a point where you have to make a decision, and you alone can make it. Um, there were good friends of mine when I moved from Tennessee here to start a church, and we talked all the time. We saw each other every week, and... Once I was eight hours, nine hours, 10, 11 hours, whatever it is, away from Tennessee, um, we just don't talk as much anymore. Like, once I didn't see them every week, it was easy to be forgotten. And sometimes, taking a step of faith can feel incredibly lonely. It can feel like you've left this place, but you haven't got to the next place yet. And now you're all alone in the middle. But sometimes, when we're in alone, Sometimes in the places where we feel most lonely, sometimes in those quiet places when it feels like everybody else is gone and we have no possessions to support us, sometimes in that quiet place is when we have the most powerful encounters with God. I think sometimes God shouts. There's a few times in my life where I feel like God has really said something loudly in a way that was clear and I'm like, this is what I need to do. But I think most of the time God prefers to whisper. And I think he whispers a lot of times when we get to a point where we're not relying on our connections or our possessions, we're alone, and we recognize all we have is us and him. When we're alone and desperate, we can encounter God in a way we never would when we're distracted and when we're surrounded by our friends. And so sometimes a step of faith means that you get lonely. Sometimes it seems lonely, but many times that leads to an encounter with God. And you'll see here in verse 25, Jacob ends up through this encounter here, whether this is with an angel who's speaking on behalf of God, or whether this is God incarnate as some type of pre-appearance of Jesus. We're not quite sure. Jacob seems to feel like he's seen God face to face after this battle. But regardless of whether this is someone representing God or God himself making an appearance, this encounter with God, this step of faith to go back home, left Jacob with scars. Now, we don't know how this wrestling match started, but we know that at the end, Jacob walked with a limp. I, I wonder, though, you know, Jacob sends his wives, his possessions, all his stuff and his kids over across the street, and he's there alone. And then I wonder if he's just stressing, you know, he's like, tomorrow i got to meet Esau, i got to meet my brother. And uh, this guy's walking by, and he's like, I'm going to fight you! You know, like, how did that get started? We don't know. It just says they started wrestling, and they started fighting. Um, I saw this week on Craigslist, it was going around on social media, that someone posted on Craigslist 
uh, it was an Italian guy in South Philly, and he says, I want to fight an Irish person to show that Italians are better than the Irish. He's like, shirts aren't required, no weapons, meet in front of Lorenzo's Pizza. If you have a last name that starts with Mick, that's even better, because I want to show that Italians can beat the crap out of the Irish. And so this was going around on social media, and people were like, who started this? Who's doing this? But I can just see that in South Philly. Somebody's like, you Irish? I'm gonna wrestle you and just take him down. So maybe that's what Jacob did. You know, maybe this guy walked by and he's like, You okay tonight? I'm taking you down. Who knows how it got started? But regardless, they got into this wrestling match. And we know that Jacob walked away from this fight with a lifelong reminder of the battle. He limped for the rest of his life. From that day onward, Jacob limped everywhere he went. He had a constant reminder that I saw God face to face. I had an encounter with God, and now I'll never forget it. Now, not every step of faith involves wrestling somebody. That's really good, because I'm not a very good fighter. Um, when I was a kid, I was really fat, and so I got picked on a lot. And so my one move was sit on them. And so if I got into a fight, I was like, just get, if I can get on top, I'll just sit on them, and they can't move. Because most of the kids who picked on me were scrawny little kids, and I was like, sit on them, and I'm safe. Um, that was my only wrestling move. But thankfully, every step of faith doesn't involve fighting someone or wrestling someone. But every step of faith will leave you with scars. Because it will require sacrifice. It requires you to risk something when you take a step of faith. It requires you to lose something because you believe the end is better than the cost. If we're honest, I think most of us want a painless Christianity. We want a Christianity that doesn't cost us anything. It promises heaven in the next life, and it promises comfort and pleasure in this one. Just believe every a little, and everything's going to be great. That's what we want. But instead, we have a real-world Christianity presented in the Bible that if you take a step of, of faith, there will be pain and loss and sacrifice. But this is the promise. There will never be pain and loss and sacrifice without purpose. And some of us simply won't follow Jesus because it's going to be costly and we'll try to choose something easier. And you'll pick a path that doesn't involve scars or pain. And you know what you have found? There's no path through life that has no pain or scars or loss. But Christianity is the only path through life that has pain, scars, and loss with purpose. Now, the limp that Jacob had was a constant reminder that Jacob had been blessed. The scar that he had from his step of faith, everywhere he limped, he remembered, God's blessed me. God's blessed me. God's blessed me. Everywhere he went. And when you take a step of faith, you'll have a scar maybe on your heart, maybe in your emotions, on your soul, or in your mind. And it'll be a reminder that God is doing something in your life. It reminded him that everywhere he went, God was with him and for him. God doesn't let you get scarred because he's powerless to prevent pain. He lets you get scarred so that you always remember his power and his presence are with you. And Jacob here, we see his faithfulness, his relentlessness, his tenaciousness here in verse 26. The man he's wrestling says, let me go. It's daybreak. I've got stuff to do. You've got stuff to do. The battle's over. And Jacob says, I'm not going to let go. I'm not going to quit fighting until you bless me. What would make you quit seeking and serving God? Have you ever thought about this? Like, what would it take for me to give up on Christianity, on following Jesus? What would make me quit? 
Maybe if some great calamity befell you. Maybe if you lost all your money. Maybe if a loved one died. Maybe if you stepped out on faith. You're like, God wants me to do this. I stepped out on faith. I fell flat on my face. I was so embarrassed. Everything was ruined. What would it take? I think sometimes that we see here in Scripture that sometimes God tests the people that he loves. Not because he doesn't know what you're going to get. A teacher tests you, right? Gives you an assignment. Didn't because she's like, I don't know if you're learning anything. You may be totally asleep thinking about Fortnite in class. You know, like, let's see if you're actually learning anything. So the teacher can see what you're learning. God gives us tests because he wants us to see what we're learning. He already knows what we're learning. He tests us because we don't know what we will do. He knows what we will do. Testing reveals our weakness, not to God, but to us. It shows that we're not as capable and as in control as we thought we were. And I think if we're honest, most people serve God because of what he gives us. We serve God because of what power he offers or what goodness he gives us, not because of who he is. We selfishly serve him. And if you selfishly serve someone, that really means that you serve yourself because you're serving your self-interest. When it stops seeming good for us to serve God, we often stop serving him because in reality we're served ourselves. In John 4.23, Jesus says, God longs for true worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. And sometimes I think about this. Like with all that I do, studying and preparing, sharing with people about Jesus, building relationships, trying to live and love like Jesus, be a student of the way that he lived. Am I worshiping him? Am I a true worshiper? Or am I simply worshiping him because he's a really good God and he's really kind and gracious to me? Am I worshiping him because of what he gives me or because I truly value him? Am I worshiping him because he's God and he deserves worship? God longs for true worshipers, people who say, I'm going to worship God because he is good and he is God, regardless of what happens to me, regardless of what he gives me or what he keeps from me. I am utterly obedient to him, regardless of success or failure. I think people like that will change the world. People who unshakably follow God because they're not shaken by the results. They have an unshakable commitment to God. I think we need a holy audacity to not quit until we see God move. We get bored and we give up way too soon. And I think the great sin of our churches is that we settle for what we can do instead of waiting for what only God can do. When was the last time you were so desperate for God, you said you would do whatever it takes to see him move in your life and world? I think too often we're happy to settle for something small that we can do instead of be desperate for only what God can do. You know, Jesus told this story about a persistent widow. And he told his disciples this story so that they would pray and not give up. That's what it says in Luke 18, 1. And so he tells this story in verses 2 through 8. And he says, there was this widow, and she was afflicted, and she went to the judge in her town, and she said, give me justice. And he says, I don't care about you. I don't care about people. I don't care about anything. Just leave me alone. And she kept coming back every day, constantly nagging him, constantly bothering him. And he says, this lady's crazy. He says, she might hurt me. She might physically assault me. I can't get away from her. She's driving me crazy. I'm going to give her justice because I'm scared to death of her and she's annoying me. And Jesus says, if an unjust judge does that, 
Will not God bring justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? He says, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. And then Jesus ends his story with this statement. When the Son of Man comes, this is the name Jesus called himself the most, Son of Man. He says, when I come back, will I find any faith on the earth? Now wait for a minute. We know when Jesus comes back, he's going to find Christians. People who say, I'm like Christ. I live in love like Christ. He's going to find churches, right? He's going to find believers. And Jesus says, but will there be any faith? That means that we can have churches and we don't have any faith. We can be believers and we cannot have any faith. We can say we're Christians, we're trying to live in love like Jesus, and we have no faith that an unseen God will do what we cannot. We've settled for what we can do instead of being desperate for what only God can do. A few years ago, I had the privilege of being in India and working with some Christian schools that were teaching English to Dalit children. Um, and so these are the lowest caste in India, and they have no hope. They're just in poverty, and uh, many of the other castes will not even touch a Dalit person. But if they can learn English, English gets them out of poverty because now they can get a job with a Western company over in India. And so these Christian schools are teaching these Dalit children English. And so these Hindu parents are sending their children to a Christian school because they say, we want them to learn English. We don't care if you tell them about Jesus as long as you get them a better life than Hinduism has offered them. And so I was over there working with some of these schools, and I met this, uh, this one Indian native who was um, over several of the schools. His name was Binu. And uh, Binu was just sharing some with me about his Christian journey and his faith. And he says, a few years ago, he says, I felt the power and presence of God just leave my life. I was like, what does that look like? And he began to describe, he says, it was just dry. He was like, I didn't feel God speaking to me. I felt like when I did things, it was in my own power. It wasn't in his power. And I'm like, man, that's, that's me a lot of times, you know? And he's like, I was so upset by this, he said. I fasted for seven days. And he says, I prayed and said, God, just let me die. Because if I don't have your power and your presence, there's no point in me being in your world and working for you. Because he says, I can't do anything without you. And so if you're not going to be with me and empower me, just let me die. And he says, after seven days of fasting and praying that, he says, I felt God's power and presence return to me. And he's like, now I work in the power of God. And I thought, how often do I do things in my power? And I'm not even worried about whether or not God's power shows up. Because I can get it done. I've got training. I've got resources. I've got material. I don't need God's power and presence. But Binu was desperate for it. He says, don't even let me be alive if you're not going to empower what I'm doing, if you're not going to be with me. I think some of us go to church for two weeks in a row, and when our lives don't instantly get better, we give up on it. Or we pray every day for a week, and when our requests aren't answered, we abandon prayer like it's an out-of-style outfit. What is it going to take to make you give up on Jesus? Jacob says, I'm never letting go unless you bless me. Until I see you show up, I'm not letting go. We're looking for reasons to quit. We dress in 10 minutes and we're like, hey, are you done? I'm done. I'm ready to give up. Are you ready? Like, let's just call it a draw, right? Let's be done. Um, I think of when we were kids, we would wrestle and uh, there was always a thing like, give, give. I, I give up. I give up. And then you're released and you're let up. Jacob's like, I'm never letting go. I'm never giving up. You know, you'd always fight that one crazy person in the neighborhood who's like, 
they're on so much Ritalin medicine, you're like, you can't, I couldn't sit on them because he just squirmed so much, you know. Um, we're looking for reasons to quit pursuing God. If we're bored for a moment, we give up and we're done. If it gets hard, we give up and we quit. If we get offended by somebody, we're like, oh, I'm just done. I'm not doing it anymore. If someone says something stupid, we're done. We're looking for excuses to quit our step of faith instead of looking for reasons to stay. And I see this with new guys coming to plant churches in Philadelphia. They get on the field and they're like, I'm so excited. God's called me to start a church in Philadelphia. They talk to somebody. The conversation goes poorly. They're like, oh man, this is hard. Maybe God didn't call me. Maybe I'm going back home. I'm like, one bad conversation, you're already ready to give up? You're going to have thousands of bad conversations. Stop looking for excuses to quit your step of faith. Look for reasons to stay, not to leave. The hardest part of any step of faith is not the first step. All the time we think like, man, I need to take this step of faith. And we make a big deal out of it, maybe at a youth conference or maybe at a church service. And we're like, step of faith right now. I'm going to step out and I'm going to do this. That's the easiest part of a step of faith. Because at the beginning, a step of faith is new. It's exciting. It's fun. We have adrenaline. We have anticipation. The hardest part of any step of faith is the middle. The Israelites left slavery in Egypt. That's the exciting part. That's the part where they're like, we're leaving slavery. We're going to a promised land. Yeah, this is awesome. Then they spent 40 years in the desert before they got to the promised land. The desert was the hard part of the step of faith. Not the leaving slavery in Egypt. Every step of faith has a desert part. It's called the middle part. It's the part where you're still believing for a promised land, but you're still dumping sand out of your shoe in the present. Church planting has a desert part. I can tell you, we started this church. We've just had about a year of services. And I'll tell you, there's a desert season in church planting. It's called the middle part. Because at the beginning, you go to a conference, and famous speakers are up on stage, and there's smoke machines, and there's famous like Christian bands playing, and they're like, you need to start a church. We need more churches in North America. And you're like, yeah, this sounds awesome. And then you go, and you're all excited, and you get here, and you realize, man, this is hard work. This is going to take a lot of time. This is going to take longer than I want. This is going to be harder than I thought. And then you spend a little bit of time in church planning and you realize, wow, it's not just hard, it's impossible. Unless God does something, I can't do anything. See, we tend to love the idea of a step of faith. Nobody's like, man, step of faith, those are garbage, I hate those. Everybody's like, that sounds awesome, that sounds good, as long as it's on paper or somebody else is talking about it. Once we start stepping out on faith, our feet get blisters. And it's sweaty and tiring, and it seems like hard work. So I love this exchange here. Jacob says, I'm not going to quit fighting until I get blessed. And God, or this representative for God, says, what's your name? I'm going to rename you, and that's going to be your blessing. But Jacob is so cheeky. He goes on and he says, you want to know my name? What's your name? What's your name? I can just imagine, like, Jacob, he's like, I'm not going to stop fighting. And so... This angel or God himself blesses him. And then Jacob's like, so tell me your name. I want to tell everybody who I was fighting with. Like who I, you know. It's just, he's so funny. God asked Jacob, what is your name though? Not because he didn't know Jacob's name. But because he wanted Jacob to own up to who he 
See, Jacob had been asked his name before when he robbed his brother of his birthright and he lied to his father. His father said, I'm going to give you a blessing to my oldest son. And Jacob's like, what about me? He's like, you're the youngest son. You don't get anything. Um, it's reversed in my family. I'm the oldest son. My brother is the youngest son and he gets everything. He's like that. He was born 16 years after me and they're like, he's our miracle baby. We'll just give you everything. I was like, I had to work for my college and they're like, we'll just pay for his. He's the favorite. No, my sister is the favorite, let's be honest. Um, but God asked him, what is your name? Because he wanted Jacob to own up to the fact of who he was. The last time he had been asked that, he lied and said that he was his brother. But Jacob this time tells the truth. He says, my name is Jacob. My name is liar or trickster. That's who I am. Steps of faith end up changing who we are. Steps of faith make us into who we need to become. If you go through life looking only for steps of comfort and not taking steps of faith, you will never fully realize who God wants you to be. We'll think we're taking the easy way through life, but you're taking a way through life that will never let you be who you're truly designed to be. The goal of life is to become like Jesus, to live and love like Jesus. That's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a student of the way that Jesus lived and loved. And only through Jesus can we come face to face with God and not be destroyed. You see here, Jacob says, I saw God face to face and I didn't die. My life has been spared. Only through Jesus can we come face to face with God and have life. Because Jesus laid down his life, we get to live his life. Encountering Jesus changes who you are and it starts with changing what you're called. Jacob says here, my name is Jacob. It means liar, trickster. And God says to him, from now on, your name will be Israel, rules with God. You were a liar, but now you're going to be someone who God says, I'm going to use you to help me change this world. You and I are named sinner. But when we come to Jesus, he renames us saint and son. You say, son, I'm a daughter. I'm a girl. Why are you calling me son? Well, in the biblical sense, son meant you were going to get all the inheritance. And so when Jesus says you are saint and son, he says you have a right standing with God when you come to Jesus. And you get all the inheritance that Jesus has. I think the difference between people who change the world and people who just talk about it is a relentless insistence to never give Thomas Edison, who invented the light bulb, he famously had 10,000 failed attempts to get a light bulb to work. And an interviewer asked him, did you waste, do you feel bad about all that time you wasted with the 10,000 steps trying to find a light bulb that works? He goes, no, I didn't waste that time. He says, the light bulb was an invention with 10,000 steps. And I think a lot of times we think, man, if it's taking a long time or it seems like it's too hard or it's going to take too much effort, well, forget it. Your step of faith might be a step of faith that has 10,000 steps. Those aren't wasted steps. They're taking you to where you need to go and making you who you need to become. Do you want an unshakable faith? Develop a tenacity to stick with God and never give up. In Galatians 6.9, the Apostle Paul says, Don't get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the right time if we don't give up. How many times do we not reap a step of faith because we give up too soon? 
So, as we do with all our sermons in this series, I want to end with four questions. What did you hear today? Could have been something I said, something I didn't say, something the Holy Spirit spoke into your heart, something you heard in the Word of God. What do you need to do with it? Because sometimes we're like, man, that was some good information. I really like that. Learn new things. But if we don't do anything, it's not changing who we are. What do you need to do? When will you do it? Because my tendency is I put it on my to-do list, and I'm like, I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it. And my wife's like, did you ever get to that? And I'm like, I'm going to get to it. Put a date on this. Say, hey, you know what? By Wednesday, I'm going to have done this because I heard this from God, and I'm going to implement it. And who will help you? You never have to take a step of faith alone. The decision might be yours to make alone, but you get to take that step with people. Let us come around you. You say, hey, Alex, I want to start a church. Hey, Alex, I just want to go across the street and talk to my neighbor. Let us help you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this challenge to be faithful. And forgive me for so often, God, wanting to give up when things don't happen fast enough. They don't happen big enough or easy enough. And forgive me for so often, God, when if it's not easy, just assuming you're not working. Let me remember that you're at work in ways that I can never see or imagine. And you're not just working in my life. You're working in the life of everyone around me and our community. And you're working over generations. And there are seeds that we are planting today with our steps of faith that will harvest in the next generation and the generations to follow. And we have faith that an unseen God is working good for his glory and for the good of the world, even when we don't see it. We pray all these things like we believe Jesus would.